Another way to save money that uh, lawmakers really might consider is to finally expand Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And this is an issue that is near and dear to the uh, heart of a state senator, to all Democrats, but to a state senator named Nathan Johnson. He's a Dallas Democrat, and Democrats say if the state would just take these federal dollars to expand Medicaid, we could ensure tens of thousands of uh, of the working poor, as Democrats uh, call them. Mm-hmm. And that would provide health insurance for them. It would also free up more money in the state budget, Jason. Yeah, I think that a lot of people hear, wait a minute, you want to expand Medicaid and that's going to save money. Uh, and so we uh, we had to get them on here just to explain because I think you know people tune it out uh, if they don't feel like they're for it right off the bat. Or they might say, eh, that's got a price tag that's too big. So we, we said, you know, you got to explain this, explain how you think this would actually work and how you think this would benefit Texas. So here is uh, State uh, Senator Nathan Johnson, Dallas Democrat. Happy New Year to you, Jason. So on Tuesday, the legislature goes back to session. And one of the things you've been talking about for a while is Medicaid expansion and, and how that could really save the state a lot of money at a time when the state needs money because of uh, the, the recession caused by the pandemic. But for people who aren't familiar with this, explain what Medicaid is, the expansion, and how much money this could save Texas. Great. Um, it, uh, it is a real big opportunity for the state to both give health care to about a million people and make money. The Medicaid program is a state health insurance program. It's a way for people who absolutely cannot afford uh, health insurance and therefore get health care, a way to have health insurance and health care. Uh, we have an existing Medicaid population. Texas has the most stringent standards of any state in the union. So what we're talking about doing is providing health insurance to essentially what we're talking about is the working poor. That's the expansion population. Uh, it is a way that we can draw down federal Medicaid dollars, just like we do in education, just like we do in transportation. State puts up some money, draws down federal money. But when you're talking about this working poor expansion, we're drawing money down at a 90-10 rate. When we do that, not only are we having this tremendous federal match, we're also able to pay for existing state programs with federal dollars. So some of the money we're spending today, we just take right off of our side of the ledger and it gets picked up. Uh. We're also, when we pick up these extra million people, we in the state use the private sector to provide this coverage and they pay a little tax on each policy. So when you get a million people coming in, that's a million new policies. And there's a little tax that the insurance companies are gonna pay when they bring those people in and that brings in revenue. Okay, so we've saved money and we've brought revenue and you add that up and it comes out to be more than the cost of providing insurance to these people. So right there, we at least break even. But the other thing that happens is because we're drawing money down, by the way, it's our tax dollars we're drawing down at this 90-10 rate, you're going to get about $11 billion per biennium of federal dollars flowing into the Texas economy that currently are not in the Texas economy. What happens when you pump $11 billion into the economy? It grows, which generates state revenue. So, so Senator, I think people would ask why this hasn't Ooh. already happened. When you when you hear a pitch like that, you, you wonder, well, why hasn't it yeah, happened? I, that's a great question. And, and the answer is a little bit frustrating, but there's kind of a happy end to it. Um, back in 2010, when the Affordable Care Act first came down, it was associated with the, the word Obamacare, and it was very toxic, and people were afraid of it. There was a feeling that you're going to create state dependency by providing health care to people, and it'll, um, it'll just send us backwards in a, in a larger nanny state kind of thing. 
And, and some of those concerns and the uncertainty associated with it were understandable at the time, particularly in a conservative state, and sometimes conservative values have served us quite well. But what we've seen through the past six years in particular, as other states have implemented this, those concerns just turned out to not come to fruition. It, it actually has encouraged people to work. It has helped state budgets. It's been very effective. It's not resulted in bloated, unmanageable systems. So the reason it hasn't happened yet is because people hadn't gotten comfortable with the data yet. But today we have the data. So and when you say when you say people, Senator, you're talking about Republican leaders and <laughs> they haven't been comfortable with it for a decade. So what makes you think they're, they're going to be comfortable now with it, though? And this. Well, I, I guess we, we we don't really have to limit it to just Republican leaders. I think the Democratic approach to uh, health care coverage for a long time has been from the standpoint of a moral obligation, which I agree with. We I think we do have an obligation to try to take care of people. They can't afford health insurance or health care. And you can't be the destined the agent of your own destiny if you don't have health care. But Democrats and Republicans now need to look at the fiscal side of this. And yeah, we are talking about Republicans who have opposed it for the most part. Um, and what happened is there were there were some statements and made and assumptions made in 2010 and 12, and they've just kind of stuck. And the reason I think it's it's uh, quite possible that I mean, maybe even probable that we pass it this session is we're in a budget crisis and we need money. And when somebody comes up and says, hey, we got an extra two and a half billion dollars for you next biennium, and your district could save its hospital and provide better health care to more people. That's going to get a lot of people's attention. And you're using the word biennium just for our, our, our listeners here. The legislature meets every two years and passes a budget that lasts two years. Right. So if you're like me and didn't take Latin, probably, uh, then you may not know what biennium is, something I didn't really recognize until I started covering the legislature. But Jason, go ahead. You had a question. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the, the other thing you keep mentioning is this 90-10. And so basically, you know, for people who don't understand that the federal government puts up 90 percent of the money for this, the state contributes 10. Uh, and, and you start looking around the map. And, you know, I'm looking at the Kaiser Family Foundation's map right now of who has done this, who has expanded Medicaid and who hasn't. And Texas is one of just 12 states. Uh, and it's it's pretty glaring when you look at this map. Senator, a lot of red states in there uh, have done this. A lot this. of red states. And that's the other good news. Um, uh, Jason, you asked a minute ago why it would now be the opportune time. And it's because a lot of red states have gone ahead and done this. And it's not just that they had the, you know, the foresight to do it. We're looking at their experience. How did they do it? Okay, it's been done in lots of places and it's been very effective in Ohio and Indiana and many other states. So we don't have to go first on this. They're benefiting it from financially and it's working quite well and no one's getting thrown out of office on account of it, including Governor Mike Pence who passed it in Indiana. Um, and, and Jason, just one last thing um, on that 90-10, I'm so glad you brought that up. What, what you'll hear in the discussion over the next, and there's gonna be a loud discussion over the next several months about Medicaid expansion is, you know, there's another thing we could do, right? Let, let's not go with that big federal program. We're gonna do an alternative thing. All of the alternative things are 60-40. They're not 90-10. Wow. They cover a tiny little slice of the population. They're 60-40, so the math doesn't work. And that 40 comes from your property tax dollars, whereas an expansion doesn't. Mm. We're going to talk property tax in a moment, but final question on this, bring this back down from politics, back down to the human level, Senator, what, what would this mean 
to the working poor that you just described? It's the difference between being able to get up every day with the confidence that you can make it through and, and, and not being able to, or uh, being able to get primary care so that uh, a minor infection doesn't become septicemia so that you get treated on Monday morning and you go to work all week long instead of winding up in the hospital for three months with a crushing burden of debt that drives you into bankruptcy. This also means that you go to a doctor to get preventative care instead of showing up at the ER for a bill that you cannot pay that ends up getting shared by all of the rest of us. And we have to remind everybody, Texas leads this country by far with the number of people who are uninsured. Absolutely right. It's not a stat that the, that the state wants to brag about. But you mentioned property taxes. And man, I just uh, paid my property taxes uh, what, a couple of weeks ago. and Very sorry about that. Dude, it is, it is I mean, just gut-wrenching. How, how, Senator, how can you lower my property taxes? I'm tired of paying this, uh, this huge bill every year. I don't think anybody is likely to be able to lower your property taxes. Um, but we can probably, and have done something about them continuing to go up. Um, the legislation that was passed last session did cap the amounts that cities and counties and other districts can can raise through property taxes. And the problem was the state came to rely on local property taxes to fund things that used to be funded with state dollars. So although I wasn't real happy about the mechanism the state used for this, the result of what we did last session is going to take pr pressure off of continuing increases in property taxes because we had a much more substantial commitment of state dollars to school taxes. And that's half your property bill right there. Another big component of your property taxes is your hospital district. And Medicaid expansion will take pressure off of the continued cost uh, of the local uh, hospital district taxes. Hey, so all this stuff is tied together. I, I, I'm just curious about this. A lot of people will contact the cent central appraisal district. Uh, that, that seems to be the target uh, when you start talking about property taxes and property valuations, especially. How much do you hear about this from constituents? I mean, we always say contact your legislator. Do people contact your office and the offices of your colleagues a lot about the issue of property taxes? and how Not as are? much as they used to. I do hear about it, uh, but not as much as they used to. Um, it's a lot of their wrath goes to the, the central appraisal district, right? And they're saying my, my property is overvalued. You know, usually it's not overvalued when you're talking about the market. What's important is not the value of your property, it's the tax rate that's being right. applied. So, but Correct. another issue on this, um, and it's one that I've been working on, is since 1997, we had kind of a change in the tax code that we believe has been manipulated to shift the property tax burden from large commercial property owners to residential homeowners. Uh, and, and that, I think, needs to be reversed. It's a very tough sell. Uh, I think we've kind of narrowed the gulf between the different factions on this issue to where there, it's possible that this session will at least be able to circumscribe the boundaries, you know, to, to make sure that when we're using comparable properties, we do it in a relevant place, uh, kind of prevent gross manipulation of values. Uh, because it's not fair that the owner of a skyscraper is shifting their property taxes to local homeowners. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, besides uh, besides uh, school finance slash property taxes, maybe Medicaid expansion and redistricting, what are the other big issues do you think that will surface this legislative session, which begins here on Tuesday? 
Criminal justice is uh, is something that's been on everyone's mind. There's a, a racial equity component, and then there's a fiscal component. And so it's it's actually one of those areas where you have people uh, of a very conservative fiscal mindset and people of a very progressive justice mindset coming together to say, are we wasting a lot of money in the process of destroying lives over things that really we shouldn't be as concerned about? For example, marijuana. Um, so there, you know, it's just going to be the marijuana legalization session, or it will be the decrim session. Do you see any chance of that at all, marijuana legalization? If I were to bet, I would say that the legislature will not pass marijuana legalization this session, um, because I I don't have a, a I don't because I don't have a lot of confidence that that would happen. A bill that I am filing is what we call B to C. It's a decrim bill, not a legalization bill. And I think there may be more of an appetite for that in the legislature because we, we all recognize there's a, a bad racial disparity in the enforcement of drug laws, that we're putting people in, in jail for petty offenses, if they're offenses at all. Um, and we could be spending our law enforcement resources much more effectively. So it's really a, you said, a, a law. And you said, you said uh, yeah, you said decrim build, decriminalize it, yes, right? Yes, not different than legalization. And even then, it's not totally decriminalization. Basically, we take it from being a class B misdemeanor down to a class C misdemeanor, which is kind of like a traffic ticket. Uh, so we're not busting up families and paying $30,000 a year to lock up somebody who otherwise would have a job and be paying taxes. And we're, we're allowing the police to devote their resources to uh, property crimes and violent crimes instead of petty drug offenses. Jason, you know, you know who we have here, Jason? We have somebody who's talking about ideas and issues here as opposed yeah. to somebody who just, you know, talks about rhetoric all the time. I'm just, I'm so enlightened. Uh, We're talking to a lawmaker it's here very, with, with it's ideas refreshing. and issues. It totally is. Uh, well, I was wondering who you were it's talking refreshing. about for a minute. <laughs> Senator, I was going to ask you, this year uh, is another one of those where we will see uh, redistricting here in Texas, and we know how those fights have gone uh, in, in years past. They haven't been pretty. Do you have a pit in your stomach about that, or do you feel okay about so it? So imagine you finished in the bottom two of your bracket in the NBA season, and somebody told you that the first place team gets first round draft pick. That's kind of how I feel about this. Uh, you know, I'm in the... I'm in the minority mm -hmm. party and the majority is getting ready to draw the maps. What's that about? Uh, so um, fortunately, it's hard to predict uh, what's going to happen with maps. I mean, the seat I occupy, uh, I don't think anybody thought would be a viable seat ever. Um, and demographics have a way of shifting around. But I'm redistricting. What bothers me more is that we waste time doing it at all. We've got a bunch of stuff we need to be working on. Why are we having political parties draw maps instead of a computer algorithm that comes up with a reasonable approximation of what districts should look like together with a, a nonpartisan or a bipartisan commission, none of whom are in office, draw these maps so that we can do our job. And that's not pie in, and that's not pie in the sky. That's actually happening in other states that way. Uh, you know, looking to other states is always a good way for a conservative state to go. How's it working? It's working pretty well. It's not easy. Uh, last, last thing I want to know is, you know, we know that the state, you know, suffered tremendously during the pandemic here as far as the revenues uh, coming in. How much is the average Texan really going to feel the budget crunch that you all are going to be dealing with this time around? It, it's hard to say because um, a lot of the cuts that might get made are going to have long-term effects. The short-term effects, certainly if you work for the state and they're laying people off, you're going to feel it. 
Um, if you are working for an agency that plans to build out in one region that has uh, multiplier effects, if, uh, if, if a road is not going to be built in a place and you were going to put a restaurant there, you're going to feel the effects. Uh, it will be widespread. In some cases, it'll be really direct. Uh, in others, it's going to take longer or you won't be able to directly attribute it to the fact that we had a budget cut there, but it's going to affect every single one of us for sure. Wow. All right. Well, State Senator Nathan Johnson, man, good to talk to you. I always appreciate the ideas. and I love listening to the different uh, things that are going on down there besides the, the heated rhetoric that comes out of both parties. So thank you for, for keeping the ideas flowing. Thank you for, for talking with me. I always enjoy talking with both of you. So, Jason, maybe after what happened to the Capitol, there will be people like Nathan Johnson, the state senator from Dallas, who uses less rhetoric and speaks more like a person yeah. and tries to figure things out. I mean, that was refreshing just hearing. It was. 